Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVitis podcast. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kapleen. Hi, everyone. Today, we're joined by Drs. Lisa Fea and Dr. Samit Sharma. Dr. Fea is a partner in vitreoretinal surgery and uveitis at Associated Retina Consultants. She's also a professor of ophthalmology at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Sharma is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Sumit, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me as well. Thank you, Lisa and Sumit, for joining us. Today, we're going to be discussing additional multimodal imaging and uveitis with a focus today on fundus photography, fluorescent angiography, ICG, and fundus autofluorescence. If you haven't already checked out our other episode on the use of OCT and OCT angiography and uveitis, please be sure to catch that on our website. So let's get started. So just starting off with fundus photography. So Lisa, for your average uveitis patient, what sort of fundus camera are you using? So right now I have the options of both the Optos California and as well as Claris. But for the most part, I use the Optos uh, California because of the ease of just getting fundus photos, autofluorescence, and the FAs and ICGs all at one time, one sitting. And it's very easy for patients to keep their position, especially when it comes to uveitis. Sometimes, as you know, their vision isn't so good, so fixation can be harder. So with the Optos, for me, uh, though I know there's some drawbacks, it just seems to, to be the best and easiest for them. Smith, what about you? Yeah, same. I'd say 98 99% of the time we're using the Optos. The, the, the drawbacks that Lisa mentioned are the, the false color. So the Optos is two channels uh, where it's two SLO images with a red and a green channel. And so you get this false color image. So it's sometimes hard to see really fine contrast or detect subtle changes in a lesion. And so if I'm looking for that, I'll use a standard fundus camera still occasionally, but very rare. Like 98, 99% of the time I'm using the Optos for fundus photos. Lisa, what do you think about just, like you said, for potentially for a UVA patient with potentially a small pupil or someone that's very light sensitive? Do you find that, I mean, I've personally had myself image with both an Optos or and a, and a maybe perhaps like a Claris. And I, there is a difference, I think, in just patient experience of how bright the lights are and also what you can acquire through a small pupil. What, what do you think in your experience uh, have you found for our UVA patients between those two types of cameras, for example? No, I totally, I mean, I, again, with the Optos, it really is ease. And including ease is that of patients who don't dilate well. And for the most part, because of the uveitis clinic, I usually have more experienced uh, photographers. But in the wintertime, when people call out, you get what you get. And so if someone is not as experienced, the Optos is so much easier. Again, you just have to know about the colors and all that kind of funds that Simit talked about. And, you know, take that uh, with a grain of salt. And if you need something more, maybe manipulate them with the Claris. And if they can be a good enough patient to do that or people dilates enough, then go from there. But really ease of clinic experience for the patient. I've done the same as well. It is so easy. You just put your head there and that's it. So even for patients who are in wheelchairs, you can still kind of manipulate it versus the Claris, which are beautiful pictures. And I know my guys who do melanomas here, they just insist on that. And sometimes I just think that's tough for the patient. And with us, you know, we have our ankles and spondylitis patients who can't really position otherwise or, or birdshot patients who really can't focus. So for that, Optos is, again, just really, really nice and for ease and for patients. Again, considering we're all light sensitive, it seems to be the best for me as well. I would say I primarily also use Optos imaging. I think the one exception, I've never seemed to feel comfortable evaluating the disc edema well in Optos imaging. I think it's just because of the false color photos. And so that's probably the one population where I still do get more standard true color photos, um, particularly if they dilate well enough to do that, is, is to look for optic disc imaging. But again, it's not as easy in an UVI as patient than, than maybe your standard glaucoma type of person. 
And I would even say that there's times when it, it, the pupil is so small, I can't get a good view in clinic with a 90 doctor exam where having that optos photo to be like, okay, there's no retinitis. I'm not missing something crazy in the back is very, very helpful. Yeah, I can't overstate that. How oftentimes, traditionally, I feel like in training, people used to say, oh, it feels like you were using these wide field images as a crutch and you really should have your exam skills, which should be far superior to the camera. But there are situations in which I feel the camera absolutely in our UV patient sees more than I'm going to be able to see in a child or amount of pupil. Or sometimes it just gets through all these opacities. It's just a lot better than we can from our slit lamp or certainly our indirect. Obviously, one of the big pet peeves is eyelashes, right? And, and I feel like we get a better sense of like the nasal and temporal periphery on the average optos image than we do the superior and inferior. So Smith, do you have any sort of, you like specify to your photographers that they need to have like gaze, gaze directed images to kind of get the superior and inferior or just specific patients? What do you So for the uveitis patients we do, so we don't, so as you said, the, the horizontal width of the image is like 200 degrees, but vertically it's only about a hundred. And so we do for the uveitis patients do a superior and inferior gaze directed image. And the photographers know to do that for all the uveitis patients and not just for the photos, but also for the fluorescent angiography at each of the time points, they do a superior and inferior gaze directed shot. All right. Awesome. So now let's go into some of our uses for these fundus images, kind of visit over visit. So I think when we look at our standard images for like grading of vitreous haze, I, I always I always kind of balk at the idea of using a fundus photo to look at vitreous haze because there's a bazillion things that can give you a hazy image from a ocular surface to a cataract, everything in between. But Lisa, do you use it for assessing haze or anything like that? I do not. I'm a little older than you guys and Mr. Blatt was my uh, mentor. So, you know, he'd be rolling over in his grave if I told him I used fundus <laughs> 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 images. To do that. But even then, I know it's not agreed upon. And I agree with you because you don't know why it's hazy. But sometimes what I can do is if I know it's improving, I like to show patients who are like, why do I have to be on these medications? I can show them, you see how that looked like it was out of focus? It wasn't out of my, it wasn't out of focus. I have good photographers. You see how great it looks now? We can see your nerve. We can see your vessels. So I'll use it from that, that aspect. But even with vitreous haze, when I'm teaching my residents, I tell them, look, you know what? No one's going to know what photo one, two, three look like. You can describe them. I can see the nerve. I can see the primary vessels. I can see the secondary vessels. And yes, again, I think uh, photography helps with documentation, but it is not the end all. So unfortunately, yes, we'll still have to do exams every once in a while uh, to really justify what the true haze is from that protein in the vitreous and all that fun stuff. But I would actually flip the question and say, I don't really use vitreous haze as a marker for treatment anymore either. I don't think that uh, it's really that relevant. I'm relying more on fluorescein leakage and uh, OCT edema and how the patient's vision is doing. I mean, if you have a patient 2 plus haze 2020 with no leakage on fluorescein, are you treating that haze? All right. So, so no, without haze, we'd have like no, none of our clinical trials would have any sort of entry <laughs> criteria. I agree. Wow. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, but I would say that the number of patients that we have with two plus haze floating around are, are very, very limited these days. But so moving on, obviously we, the bulk of what we use our, our imaging for is a visit over visit is to identify new choriretinal lesions. So if you're using these pseudocolor images, there's some data about Obviously, we have a green channel, a red channel for these multi, multi-spectral images. Do either of you guys split and look at your green channel, red channel? Do you feel like it adds anything different versus the combined multi-spectral image, Lisa? So I do not. I guess because for the most part, I still use a lot of ICG. 
So I guess to me, I mean, yeah, you can definitely do it and see if you want to see more, you know, deeper with the choroidal lesions. But if I'm looking for a choroidal lesion anyway, I want to see if it's active or not. So I'm going to, for the most part, get an ICG. And then even like with OCTA, it is really good for helping if I want to follow those choroidal lesions without having to constantly expose them to iodine. So for me, I don't. I, I like the imaging with the colors, but no, I don't. So eh, I'm sure there's advantages of that, but I just use the other stuff. Samit, what about for the person that doesn't have ICG or OCTA? Is there a way to make use of these pseudocolor images and or the individual channels and maybe see some things that they might not see otherwise? I mean, we, we've looked at it and I don't find it that helpful. I think the regular photo with the two channels superimposed actually gives you the majority of the information. Can you pick out some subtle details if you really spent time pulling out each channel? Yes. Do we have time in clinic for that normally? Very rarely. So if you don't have ICG, I would say look at your OCTA, look at your OCT and look at the choroid on that with EDI. It's tough to spend the time to figure out whether there's a subtle change by splitting the channels. And I don't really know if it adds a ton of information. I don't use it often enough to be able to say for sure that it doesn't, but my experience, I haven't found it that helpful. I think one of my favorite uses for the visit over visit optos images is really looking for vascular sheathing. I'm actually sometimes impressed at how much better of a feel I get for the overall vascular sheathing pattern and what's the level of activity looking at the pictures compares to my clinical exam sometimes. I think that's a big population that I tend to use it in. I guess, Lisa, what's what's some of your favorite people where you're, you know, you're coming back each visit, or maybe not each visit, but fairly frequently at their visits where you're getting this longitudinal imaging done or color photos done? So, I mean, it's pretty classic with birdshot, especially those patients who are barely on any medication. And they're like, I'm 20-20, I can see just fine. I'm like, okay, well, let's see here. But in the olden days, we'd like stare at the patient, go back and forth to the picture, original picture we had, and like, oh, I think there's another one there. But at the end of the day, we're not the ones taking the medication. So in a way, even though, yes, it's for me to see how the lesions are doing, make sure there's no new ones. Also with Dallin Fuchs and, you know, Sarcoid and VKH, I really like that as well. But I think showing the patients as well, see, look, I'm so glad you're seeing so well, but the medicine is clearly not enough. And we have to go on more because I don't want to wait till we lose it. And so, but birdshot, uh, sarcoidosis, and uh, again, VKH are one of my favorites. And again, you talked about disc edema as well. And it's so funny because we use, I use OCT with a nerve fiber layer for disc edema, just because I agree. It's so hard. And sometimes just to try to get them to look at the nerve and it, they're so, so sensitive. So that's kind of where I go to that for that. But for the colors, that's my, those are my mainstays. All right. Excellent. So I think it'd be hard to list all the types of patients for whom you're getting fundus photos visit over visit. I think the simpler question, are there patients for whom you don't get fundus photos visit over visit submit? So for UVI patients, well, sure. So anybody would just answer segment disease <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but uh, if there's anything in the posterior segment, I tend to be very imaging heavy and I do get uh, photos a lot. Um, there's times where just the OCT will suffice. And I think you can sometimes use the OCT as a surrogate of looking at not just histoid edema, but just overall retinal thickness and looking at that vascular thickening as well. So you can, it's been described by a few people where you can look at how thick the vessels are as a surrogate for vascular leakage. And so maybe those are times where I'm not getting it every time, but I, I, I tend to get a lot of fundus photos in the uveitis patient. Again, and I think it's very, very, very important as a patient education tool, because like you said, 
all these patients with various types of posterior panuviatus may be minimally symptomatic and you show them all this extensive coronal scarring, vascular sheathing. Sometimes they'll actually take their medication just based because of that, you know, so uh, definitely, definitely value added. Let's move on to fluorescein angiography. So you, we, we kind of, I mean, I'll, I'll start off that I, I agree with Lisa Summit and Laura that for the large bulk of my patients, even the fundus camera, but also for fluorescein angiography is on ultra wide field imaging with an optos camera. Are there any situations in which you're using a different camera for your, your FA estimate? Not for uveitis patients. I mean, it's like 100% FA is optos for uveitis. What about you, Lisa? No, we're, we're the same way. We actually had one time where the optos was down and I was freaking out because it was uveitis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Cancel all the news. And I was like, well, we can't put them anywhere. So uh, we used, the, uh, we used the, the Claris, which just a little bit slower. And again, it was a little bit harder, but I was lucky to have that. But I can't imagine not doing wide field. I can't imagine going back to trying to use like a 50 degree lens or trying to do sweeps because it just, at that point, it, I, if I had to see the new ones, I'd say, hey, so we're going to get every other imaging except this, this dye test. And when I see you to see how you're doing, <laughs> we'll get it assessed then. Because I think, honestly, it has added so much. And I know everyone says it, but there are so many things we were truly missing when we did not have this. And I've had patients sent to me who are diabetics and they're like, they have so much dropout. They must have uveitis. I said, no, I'm sure it's been there the whole time. Their A1C is 11.5. So it's just amazing. And from a uveic standpoint, really, I feel like we are more aggressive or more appropriately aggressive because we know what's going on out there. I even make some of my patients that come from referrals from some of our satellite clinics, but they don't have an optos actually get optos when they present to me initially because I think there's just so much more additional information. The patients sometimes will be a little bit reluctant at first, but then when you show them the two images side by side with just more of the 50 degree with the sweeps versus the ultra wide field and how much more information we get, most of them are usually convinced it was worth that extra stick. Yeah. I just want to back that up because I know uh, most of my news I bring to my the our major hub because we have everything there and they moan and groan. And I'm like, look, you just, I need to treat you the best way possible. And it's just not going to work if you don't come here. And again, if there's people who can't come and you kind of deal with it, what you can, but you really, I don't know. I just think you miss too much nowadays. No, not knowing what's out there. So I agree with you. It's, and you convince them one way or another, but I, that travel is totally worth it. So, so for maybe, maybe the one resident that's actually just listening to the podcast submit. So the, for your uveic patient with the, with the wide field FA, what, what's the myriad of things that we use FA for, for the average uveitis patient? What are we kind of looking to detect? I mean, I think kind of everything, right? So, looking at the <laughs> so it is, it really is. We're looking at, is the nerve leaking? Is the nerve hot or not? Uh, is there vascular leakage? What's the pattern of vascular leakage? What's the pattern of non-perfusion? How much non-perfusion do we have? Is it uh, large vessel knockout? Is it an arterial versus venous disease? Is it all capillary dropout only? How much uh, the, the, the pattern of ischemia and the areas of ischemia that are involved? Do we have any neovascularization? Is there CNV? Is there any type of vein or artery occlusion? Really, I mean, we're, we're looking at all of it. So, But the big thing we're also looking to see is how is it changing over time mm -hmm. as we treat these patients? And so is the patient responding the way we would expect? And the other half of it is how much of this do we expect to fully go away? Because sometimes when it's very chronic disease, a lot of that leakiness isn't leaking. It's just window defects or staining. And it's easy when you're just starting out, especially for the residents, to be like, oh, it's just leaking everywhere when it's all a big window defect or just 
the retina is so trophic that you're just seeing uh, background fluorescence. And, and so there, that's where some of the subtlety comes into it. Absolutely. I mean, I think this also kind of brings us when we're talking about patterns of leakage and that we're seeing in our, our UVS patients, Lisa, in your mind, what, this is a very tough question on a, on an audio format, what patterns of leakage require treatment? Does all vascular leakage require treatment for you or what do you think? No, that, that is tough. And, you know, we talk about mutes and ampi and staining late or blocking and then staining, staining late. Those kind of things are, are fun and nice to see. It doesn't always fit that nice little pattern. For the, the vascular leakage, looking at the periphery to see what's going on out there. And you can see, even if it doesn't all go away, assume it said you're really looking at that pattern for the retinal vasculitis. Is it overall decreased leakage there? So those are, again, the classic mute, uh, the, a lovely white dot syndromes, as well people like to use and say, with the FA is, is very, very helpful, I think. But for the most part, though, at least around here, if retina docs are seeing that, if the box early stains late, they don't really send it to me. So I don't, unfortunately, don't get to see a lot of that fun stuff. But yeah, for the residents, definitely something out there for them to see and, and recognize those patterns. I also, West Nile, I think is really nice with the uh, fluorescein angiogram. One of my favorites, it's kind of uh, patterns, the little reefs along the blood vessels there. So classic. And for the most part, you'll see it on when you're doing your exam, but when the FA shows those little reefs going right along, right along blood vessels, you're like, I got this diagnosis. Let's get IgG, IgM for West Nile, and we got it. So those are the, the big ones. Besides the white dot, I would say obviously retinal vasculitis and, of course, uh, West Nile. Yeah, I think that's a, a good list of, of conditions where you can potentially be tested on for these pathognomonic findings um, with FA. So one thing that, that sometimes drives me a little bit nuts with our retinal vasculitis patients is that a referring doctor might see neovascularization and they do PRP on a patient with uveitis, right? So, so when you see neovascularization, certainly you can have ischemia-related neovascularization in, in a uveitis patient, but oftentimes that's not the case. So using that FA to kind of detect that difference, right, is, is, so, is so important. You'll see these neovascular fronts just melt away as inflammation is under control. Have you encountered that in practice as well, where you're seeing the patients with neovascularization being treated with PRP or anti-VEGF or something? Absolutely. And does it work? Arguably, yes. But is it the right treatment? No. Um, <laughs> I think for me, if I have a uveitis patient with inflammation, the first thing I question is, is their inflammation actually under control? And if their inflammation is under control and the FA shows ischemia, then that's a reason to do PRP or anti-VEGF because in those patients, it is necessary. But usually the case is that their inflammation is not under control, like they're an intermediate uveitis patient that's getting neovascularization because they're super inflamed. And if you just get the inflammation under control with a course of steroids, you can actually see it melt away and go away really rapidly. And so, so I tend to hold off on PRP and uveitis patients until I know the inflammation is under better control. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this question back to you again, Smith, because it's, I'm just curious what everyone's thoughts are, because I think if we poll the four of us, we're going to have different answers, which is part of the problem with, with retinal vascular leakage and uveitis. Is there a threshold that exists for you for treating a patient with a little vitreous cell and a little sheathing and you do an FA? Is there a certain extent of leakage that in your mind warrants treatment? Again, I know this audio format, very hard to kind of describe, but just curious. So I let the patient guide it. So I ask them about their symptoms, right? And sometimes they'll say, you know, I, I don't really have any symptoms. And I'll say, well, there's a decent amount of leakage there. Let's try a course of prednisone and then come back in a couple of weeks and tell me how your symptoms are and we'll repeat the dye test. And if they symptomatically improve and I see that vascular leakage improve, 
I'm going to push to try to get rid of more of it. But if I treat them and it's a mild amount of leakage and they say, I'm 2020, I don't notice any difference before or after, or even if they're not 2020 and their vision's poorer and they still don't notice a difference with treatment or not treatment, that's maybe somebody that I'll tolerate some of that far peripheral leakage. But I think the real answer is we don't know what happens and what the consequence is 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, because we haven't had wide field for that long to be able to follow that area of leakage and say untreated, it doesn't lead to peripheral field loss after 30 years. I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's a good point. Like to me, location matters. You know, the closer you are to the posterior pole, the closer you are to the macula and the disc, the more I want to treat you. The further it's out, you know, in those super wide fields, somehow they catch that really great peripheral temporal area and there's just that tiny bit of leakage. But otherwise, you know, they don't have CME, they don't have disc edema, there's no vit haze, you know, it's a couple cells. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of times I'm willing to watch that, especially if the patient's asymptomatic. I think Lisa's nodding some yeses here and, and kind of probably agrees. <laughs> so, I mean, seriously, how many uh, the pars planitis patients that we have? And I, I, you can ask anyone. I am super aggressive, but I am not going to kill my patient for their eyeballs. And how many parthenitis patients we have are 2020, 2030, no macular edema. We see the leakage there. And so we watch them and assume it's said, you ask them about it and that kind of thing. And, you, you know, hopefully you have a responsible patient who will call you if there's any changes, but you're going to see them anyway. But we don't, we don't have that. And that's some data, I guess we should really look, I should really look at that in my parthenitis patients who come in because everyone's freaking out about their snowballs. There's no snow banks and there's some peripheral leakage. I'm like, Okay, so I should look long term for that. But the only thing I would like to add, though, is with birdshot, uh, birdshot retinitis or birdshot uveitis, I guess they call it nowadays. Jennifer Thorne talks about retinal rot. And so that might be the only disease where if I see only a few vitreous, a uh, little vitreous haze and maybe just a little bit of leakage, I will still talk to them initially about treatment and then maybe push it a little bit more than someone else who is, again, a parsimonitis patient. I think, Laura, your point of more posterior pole, more likely you're going to treat. And again, even with the birdshot patients, if there is minimal vasculitis, it is going to be that small little areas in the posterior pole anyway. Mm -hmm. So that might be the only diagnosis I might push a little bit more. But again, parsplenitis, like you said, with that stuff they got on the very far edges, you're like, darn it, I had one of the good photographers today. And you know, and they got everything. So, But, but, but those yeah. birdshot patients are often the ones where you do treat them and they're like, oh my God, I feel so much mm -hmm. better. I was 2020 before and 2020 after, but I feel so much better now. Very true. But sometimes, you know, you're like trying to convince them. I'm like, I've been doing this for so long. Let me tell you, it can get better. Right. And then <laughs> it's not until they drink the water. You're like, oh, do you feel better now? Oh, there you go. I just wanted to highlight two points that Smith and Lisa brought up real quickly. One is if you're someone that doesn't have ready access to FA at, at every location where you're seeing your patients, it doesn't work all the time. But certainly, at least if you have an OCT, you can kind of monitor those thickness maps. At least for the patients with a larger vessel vasculitis, you can look for paravascular thickening on your thickness maps and just looking at how that changes longitudinally. Again, you're going to obviously miss the small vessel vasculitis and the peripheral stuff, but it's better than nothing. The other thing I'd add is that as great as pictures are for detecting sheathing, how you know, the vessels look on these photos and what you see on FA, it's, it's, it's always almost night and day difference, right? I mean, you can look at someone that has extensive sheathing and their FA just looks quiet as can be. And someone that has a, just a beautiful photo that has just diffuse vascular leakage. So in my, in my mind, almost all UBS patients need an FA, at least unless they're like, you know, they're just a, an isolated anterior UBS, 
like at some point to kind of assess that activity. I think that is a good point you bring up, though, Akshay, is that, I, and I tell this to our trainees, so maybe our trainees and listeners here, this is a little bit of a problem. You think someone is a primary anterior uveitis, but if you're not getting the response to therapy you're expecting or their vision doesn't seem to be recovering, you know, even if their maybe central macular OCT doesn't look that awful or is maybe just mentally thick, that is a patient where maybe you do want to think about escalating into getting a fluorescent angiogram because sometimes you'll be amazed at some of these patterns of small vessel leakage or this capillary leakage that clinically on exam, you're just not not seeing much. But then you get that thing, you're like, geez, well, no wonder their, their anterior uveitis isn't improving. There's just so much activity coming from the back of the eye here. Lisa, have you noticed, like, again, I've had I've had some patients that have come to me, they got an FA, maybe they, they bring one with them or they might have a partner on Claris. You know, so it's, 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 it's not a, it's a decent field of view, but I'm always amazed at how washed out all that, what, what we would typically see like as our capillary leakage is on a clarus and you get an optos and it's just so much more obvious. And there's just, it's, it's, it's like, you're looking at a different eye. Have you noticed that to be the case for you as well? I mean, every once in a while, but for me, again, I, I'm again, a little older than you guys. So I didn't have all the, all the fun stuff you guys do. So I kind of, I use other parameters, but no, I, I totally agree with versus the clarus again, I don't. The melanoma guys love it, but I just don't think it gives you the full picture that like Optos does. And will I make them, if my partner just got a Claris FA, all that kind of stuff, and they're coming to see me three weeks later, am I going to get another FA? No, I'm not going to. I'm going to talk to more about treatment and say, but I'm going to tell you right now, the next time I see you, uh, drink lots of water because I will be doing that dye test again. <laughs> and it's going to be on my camera and not on theirs. That's too much. And, and I just like to add two points. One, they can't do, if you can't get an IV, you can do it oral. You got to wait like 30 minutes to get your late images or even longer, like 45 minutes later, but it does work well. And you could do smaller doses of the dye with the optos is what I've found. And they are tolerated much better. So you can even do like a half dose or a third of a dose and still get just as good quality images. So submit after they take it, when, when do you start your image acquisition? Take about 20 minutes for your first shot and see if you see anything. And then about every five minutes after until you first see dye. And then you got to give it a good 15 minutes after you first see dye before you uh, do your late images. And that's often useful too for pediatric patients, maybe where they're not going to want the needle sticker. It becomes a mm-hmm. unfortunately unhappy child visit and you need to come up with a different approach. Um, now, we, we talked a little bit about maybe are there times where we'll allow a leakage. Um, so, Lisa, are there any patterns when you see them on FA that you just kind of grimace a little bit inside and just know that this is probably going to be a tough-to-treat uveitis patient? Yeah, absolutely. The ones that just leak everywhere with that ferning pattern. Yes, I hate just see tons of capillary leakage. It's the worst. <laughs> Those are awful. <laughs> Those are awful. They're so difficult to get under control. I hate it. I feel like the residents always are like, oh, why are you so unhappy all of a sudden? And you're like, oh, do you see the ferns? We just know this is going to be a bad disease to treat. You see that. Lisa, do you have any other least favorite patterns? (laughs) No, diffuse leakage is pretty bad. But at least you know you're up against something. They know what you're up against. And you know you have to like prepare for that. And I feel like I try to push a little. I try you push someone or you advise someone to take medication. Heaven forbid something bad happens. You know, you don't want to get in trouble for that. And I know we don't want to do defensive medicine, but I do a lot of uh, medical legal cases and stuff like that. So sometimes we have to think about these things. But when you see that, you're just like, I got to go all out. I got to take the time to make sure this patient really understands it. So even though you know it's going to be a long journey, you know what the journey is going to be. Versus the person who's a little bit here, a little bit there. You're like, okay, what do I do? Like, there's no thinking when you say it's diffuse. It's like treatment. <laughs> and like, that's it. So it sucks. But at least you know exactly what you have to do. 
All right, moving on to ICG. So in this section, Samit and Lisa are going to convince Laura and I to do way more ICGs than we do. So <laughs> yes, I think in, in honest disclosure, I probably underutilize ICG. So yes, Lisa and Summit, make me make me better about doing this in my patient population. So we're going to assume that we're we're continuing to use our same camera moving into our ICGs. So just very basically, so what what sort of things cause hypersinescence that we see on an ICG? So, you know, obviously in Europe, they use it a lot more than we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cool thing about uveitis, I'm sure you all would agree, it's so international. So VKH, sarcoidosis, birdshot. I, I know I have so many presentations of birdshot where I see the vasculitis and I don't see any lesions and I'm not an idiot. I'm looking, I'm swear, and there's no vitritis yet. You get the ICG and you see those lesions. And then I always show it to my residents. I'm like, do you see these spots? Do you see how early we're getting this? <laughs> So birdshot, but I got to tell you, people forget about like lupus choroiditis. That is a huge deal. And I really think, you know, besides again, VKH, sarcoid, birdshot, those kind of like the obvious ones. I think lupus is a big deal. And everyone talks about central serous, lupus central serous. I was like, no, that's the reason they have subretinal fluid is because their lupus is not controlled. They have choroiditis, control it. And then that subretinal fluid will go away. This is not central serous on top of, on top of lupus. So I think there's a, an RA doesn't have as much of a choroiditis picture, but I, you know, for lupus, I think you really do need to have the ICG and infectious things, you know, toxo, I know we think of as retinal and, but obviously there's stuff there. And I, unfortunately I see a lot of TB as well. And there's a lot of stuff that the ICG will help to reveal, but you have to be careful because a lot of people do have iodine allergies and I don't want anything bad to happen. And as we get better with OCTA and it gets faster, because right now it's a little slow for me and we get wide field OCTA, maybe I won't really need ICG, but I really think we forget in like simple disease, simple diseases, simple diseases like RA and lupus, how important it is to visualize the choroid. So Smith, Lisa gave a, a really great list of conditions where we see these hyposinus and lesions where either there's infiltration that are just being detected in ICG. Uh, what about things that kind of light up on ICG that wouldn't light up on an, on an FA perhaps? Yeah, so I think that sometimes, so, so the hyposinescence would be like the granulomas, the infiltrates causing flow voids. The hypersinescence is a little bit more nebulous, so it's uh, we don't really know what it is, you know? <laughs> uh, so we have cases where there's active inflammation, and even in sarcoid and VKH, you can see areas of these hypersinescent areas. And I never know quite what to make of them, but they do get better with treatment, so that's great. But what are they? I don't know. And the other time I would add is anytime I get an OCTA, OCT and I see that the cord is thick in a uveitis patient, I'm adding the, the ICG on for those because you'll often pick up things. And if you don't look for it on the OCT, you won't know to look for it and you won't pick it up. But if you start looking for it, that's one way to increase your ICG usage is just look at the choroid on OCT. If it's thick, get an ICG, be surprised at what you'll find. And how often then do you like to repeat doing ICG if you're having having that type of patient? Is it like, okay, they're going to get another FA, we're getting another ICG, is it a little less frequent? So for me, you know, um, it's really nice. We give both dyes at the same time. So when I first see a patient, if we determine that they're going to get an OCT, I'll do FA OCT at the same time. So I just get it done. Sometimes it's easier for the not as experienced photographers as well because they know how to focus and then they basically just go deeper. So it works on multiple levels. And again, it's just one testing at a time. I don't really, I'll do it initially to see, okay, I confirm my diagnosis. This is what's involved. And then for the most part, I'll try just to do FAs only. But like, again, in six months, something, or I guess three months, if it's really bad, but six months, I think this should be better. And they're 
they're not, again, and like as someone was saying, I was looking at the OCT, I'll get it again, but mostly it's for initial. And again, if someone's sent to me and they've had everything else done, then I'll do it again there. But for the most part, I try not to do it as often once I have that diagnosis. But again, looking at the OCT or so the choroid on the OCT EDI is very, very helpful. So the one time I do use it as a repeat is when it's a choroidal predominant disease. So your FA doesn't show much, your OCT doesn't show much, but the ICG shows a number of lesions, which I've had in some sarcoid mm-hmm. patients, some of these lupus choroiditis patients, and, and those I will get repeat ICGs when they come in, kind of like I was repeating the FA instead. But that that's rare. I agree with Lisa. It's, it's at the initial visit and then maybe in a year, but not that frequently for the ICG. All right. Excellent. Super helpful. I also feel like I underutilize ICG, but I'm going to have to rethink that after this, after this talking to you, I've gotten. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on to fundus autofluorescence. So again, Lisa said at the beginning, we're nice to have one camera to do everything, but there are a multitude of, of cameras for which uh, you can get autofluorescence, but we'll, we'll assume for the moment that we're all getting out on an Optos camera. So Submit for our, like, I think for me, autofluorescence, I'd say is one of, is my, one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Obviously there's specific conditions where it is like the, the showstopper, but just for very, just very basics, what, what things kind of cause something to be hyper autofluorescent on an image, regardless of whether it's UVS or not, just if we're looking at something and it's bright autofluorescence, what are some possibilities where it could be doing that? So it's the lipofuscin that does it, right? So it's an either increased lipofuscin production increased accumulation of some type of autofluorescent material, or if you have photostress basically of any type. So photoreceptor death can also cause a hyper autofluorescence initially before it becomes hypo later on. And then as the, 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 the flip side on hypo is a loss of the RPE is a big one, atrophy of the RPE, or just a, even long-term sickness of the RPE where you reduce the number of fluorophores there is what would cause hypo. But you're right. I love FAF. I use it a ton. The Optos is nice, but I think the quality on some of the other autofluorescence devices, the FAF cameras, is actually better. The only reason Optos is nice is it's that one be-all, right? They can be right there, get their FA. Before their FA, they get their FAF and their photos, and you're done, and you're out of there. It's quick. It's easy. But some of the other cameras do give you a better quality for macular imaging, and there's times you may want to think about that if it's if everything is localized in the posterior pole. Yeah, I was going to ask if there are ever any patients where you do use one of the other modalities, because I do have a couple of patients where I feel like where it's mostly macular-related pathology, where I sometimes will prefer actually, and we have spectralis imaging on my at my institution, and I, sometimes I will use that because I do feel like it's a little bit like a crisper definition mm-hmm. around some of the, the lesions. The, the resolution's higher. So Lisa, Summit kind of went over some some causes of, you know, things being bright, some things being dark. So in our uveitis patients, what's really more often than not the reason why things are kind of bright? What in inflammatory conditions, what's causing for things to be bright on our autofluorescence? You like thinking about disease en- entities that you're like yeah, worried like, about? Like, so, yeah, I mean, so yeah. like we, you know, obviously all of our white dots, we see t- tons of things brighter, the edge of some of our placoid lesions and Maybe kind of compared to AMD, we're, we're thinking more of a lipofusin type of thing. In, in those cases, we're more thinking about like, you know, kind of like photoreceptor, you know, sickness and photoreceptor loss. It's almost, I don't know, I hate to use the word window defect, but it's almost like those photoreceptors are sick and you're kind of seeing that RP through those sick areas a little bit better. So it's almost like a marker of photoreceptor injury. And it's, that's more often than not what's going on with our uveitis patients, especially like in our white dots. Is that correct? 
Yeah, and I, I mean, for me, oh, obviously, we, you know, muse and AMP people talk about, but I use a lot for my relentless placoid patients when I think they're doing well and I compare them like, okay, this little pseudocipigenous pattern looks better, but these edges are still too bright for me. And I tell them, look, you're doing so much better. And I do, again, use it as a tool for the patients. See all these black areas, those unfortunate areas are done. But you see all these white areas, there's something we can do about those. And so we follow that. And I see, remember how bright and white this area is? Look at it now. It's gray. We got this before it became dead and black. And that's what I show them as well. And actually, Steve Ye did a really nice paper for CMV. And I have used this myself about autofluorescence and those edges. And I have patients who sent to me HIV positive or they're on chemo, whatever. And everyone's like, oh, no, their CD4 counts fine. I said, no, this is, if this was CMV, look at this edge there. And I've tapped the eyes and the PCR has been positive for CMV. And so they get, they get treated for the CMV, even though everyone's telling me, oh, no, no. I was like, well, we, we do remember about granular. You know, there's different forms of CMV, CMV people. So I guess Steve showed that paper. It was really nice. And that is one of the reasons, again, for me, because that's a big deal. Instead of saying, okay, I'll see you in a few months tapping that eye because of that autofluorescence or hyper autofluorescence. I was going to say, I really like it in bioretinitis. I use it as in addition to photos for every visit for bioretinitis because reactivation shows up as hyper autofluorescence before they get the white retinitis. And if I see it at all, I'm treating them again and I'm being very aggressive again. And I've seen Steve's paper and a couple of people, other people have presented on this as well. And I've, I've used it a ton for that reason. My biggest challenge in some of these, like the multifocal choroiditis patient or the ampi patient with multiple lesions is you really have to put up the old image and the new image side by side and just stare at them <laughs> and literally go along every aspect of the image and take your time with it because you'll be like, oh no, it looks exactly the same. And then you really look closely and you're like, oh no, there's this new hyper spot that wasn't there last time. Okay, you're active. So I spent a lot of time looking at FAF images. I really like it for the posterior patients who are coming with like new photopsia type complaints because sometimes you really will see these hyperautofluorescent regions before they actually start to develop an obvious clinical finding or fundus finding. And that's ideal, right? I mean, we would like to treat this before they get a new scar somewhere in the back of their eye. And, and I think that's amazing sometimes that you'll see that. What are some of the other kind of pathognomonic descriptions? Let's let's touch base maybe on like MUDES because that came up a little bit earlier and, and we have that like replay pattern on FA. What, what do you see on the MUDES fundus autofluorescence? So I was going to say, just like we look for MUDES, uh, you know, using the olden days, again, using a 78 lens. Do you guys even know what a 78 <laughs> lens is or, or, or a macular lens? Do you guys even know like how I to use a macular lens? You're not, you're not <laughs> that old. <laughs> you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I can pull out the ruby lens and then you guys have really have no idea. I have one on every lens. I don't say that. <laughs> I do have one, but I have it. a ruby lens on every foot lens. <laughs> So good, you know, I mean, but, you know, the granular, you know, the granular macular from Mutes really is super helpful if the nerve is not mm -hmm. super hot. And that's the thing with autofluorescence. It really helps with that. And then, though I do agree, though, uh, you know, Heidelberg autofluorescence using like for my pick patients and for Mutes might show it a little bit better and a little more defined. But I do, I do find that that's super helpful with that, that kind of pattern that you see there. Yeah, so Samit, so moving on to other kind of pathognomonic autofluorescence findings. So in Azor, we've had this trizonal pattern of autofluorescence described. Uh, maybe for our, our residents, what's that trizonal pattern? And do you believe you see it in all or most of your Azor patients? I think these, tri these Azor patients can be so tough where 
you see this pattern of, so the trizonal is you see a pattern of hypo with then a leading edge. So, so the, the, that's your uh, hypoautofluorescence is where the retina is dead and gone, completely atrophic. And then you have this hyper area where they're very, very active. And that's the leading edge where things are basically dying. And then you have the normal outside of that. And so the, the three zones, zone one, two, and three, one is the normal, two is the hyper and active edge, and three being the atrophic and dead area. And I think the, the, the Casey group is the one that's described this, the, the, the centrifugal versus the centripetal spread, where it can either go in to out or out to in. And these patients can be really, really difficult to control and to get, get under control because they often don't respond to anything. Yeah, I completely agree. And that, and that pattern, I mean, outside of Azor, the other, and Lisa brought this up talking about our relentless placoid patients, but just in general with placoid disease, kind of seeing again, that pattern of like this dark, that leading edge and the normal is, you know, just kind of classic for all these kind of placoid diseases. And I think I probably use autofluorescence more than anything in, in assessing disease activity in placoid disease for pigeonists, ampigenists. And, and so on and so forth. I think the one thing too to keep in mind is sometimes it just takes a little bit of time too, though, for that hyperautofluorescence to transition, you know, when you're implementing your treatment. And so sometimes you need to just monitor closely if you're not sure to see which way things are going. And I think sometimes that's a little bit frustrating for the patients in that, especially, you know, maybe serpiginous, they had an active lean edge, you give them an injection, you advance immunosuppression, and they don't immediately see that change one way or the other. And so sometimes that's just something you need to, as we talk about using these for learning tools, do a little advanced counseling on. Because I think especially with some of these more relentless diseases, it can be a little discouraging for the patients to not see that immediate improvement. And so I always like to tell them, you know, we're just making sure it's not getting worse initially. And then we expect to see some improvement as we get further down the road. It is really helpful for managing some of the frustrations with, with having a reactivation on some of these more severe diseases. Yeah, I try to be really excited. I'm like, look at this. This is so great. It's not any worse. We're, we're, we're going in the right direction because, you know, I mean, it's hard. These these are chronic diseases. We know all the DSM-4, DSM-5 associations with the depression from chronic disease and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, by the end of my UBS clinics, again, most of my intense stuff comes to my main office and I do the other stuff. But when I at the end of those days, when I have it at my main clinic, I'm exhausted because I'm just like, the cheerleader, oh, wow, this is so great. It's not worse. And you're like, oh my goodness gracious. So hopefully this works. But yeah, I know I agree with you though. Like it's good. But even then, again, the fact that we see so well that it hasn't more, there aren't more areas of hypo. It, I think that's super, super helpful. And I love autofluorescence. I remember first time using it at NIH and I was like, this is the best thing ever. And people are like, well, it hasn't been really, you know, validated, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, validated? What are you talking about? The melanoma guys have been using it forever. We're just a little slow to catch up. So submit any patients with any forms of posterior panuviatus where you think autofluorescence is not particularly helpful? I think the, the retinal vasculitis patients, usually it's not that helpful. I, I think unless there is RP or choroidal involvement, it tends not to be as helpful. So, so those ones are the big ones for me. All right. Well, on that happy note, I want to thank Samit and Lisa for spending their uh, Saturday afternoon with us discussing fluorescent angiography, ICG, autofluorescence, and fundus photos. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much again for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Samit, thank thanks you for so much for joining me. us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. And listeners, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVITIS podcast. We hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Until then, Stay healthy and stay safe.